You're listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Here's your host, Ed Yonka, Director of Communications and Public Policy. Thank you, Max, and welcome to today's episode of Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Criminal justice reform, changes to sentencing policies, ending mass incarceration. These phrases are part of the political and social dialogue of 2019. According to public opinion polling, a growing number of voters want to abandon so-called tough-on-crime policies and change who goes to prison and how long they spend there. A critical part of this public debate, an urgent piece that merits our attention, though, is how we treat and what services we provide to persons who are already incarcerated. What are our obligations as a society? What are our obligations as a state and under the Constitution to provide humane conditions and care for those who are incarcerated in our prisons? For decades, the ACLU across the nation and here in Illinois has fought to expose and improve conditions for those detained by the state. In recent years in Illinois, for example, we have challenged conditions in the state's youth detention centers resulting in the end of the use of solitary confinement at those facilities. And we challenged and improved conditions and long-term problems at the Cook County Juvenile Detention Center. More recently, the ACLU and our partners won a significant victory in a settlement reached with the state of Illinois to improve the abysmal system of providing health care in Illinois prisons. The case is known as Lippert named for one of the plaintiffs who suffered harm because of the lack of medical care. We want to talk about that settlement reached in this case and what it means going forward. And to help us with that conversation, we are pleased to welcome ACLU of Illinois Senior Staff Counsel Camille Bennett to this episode. Camille, welcome to Talking Liberties. Thank you, Ed. So I want to start by talking just briefly to give a little sense of of what the kind of conditions of care were about someone in a story you've told me about Montel. And I wonder if you could just talk about Montel and what his condition was and a little bit of the path that he traveled when in Illinois prisons. Well, Montel um, had advanced multiple sclerosis. He had it because they hadn't treated his multiple sclerosis while it's treatable, Eventually, it gets to the point where you can't treat it anymore. You just have to manage it. So he was, by the time we encountered him, he was mostly paralyzed. He had a little bit of movement in his right arm, but that was it. He was moved to the prison, Dixon, where they place a lot of their more challenging patients, but they didn't care for him there. So he needed skilled nursing care. They didn't turn him over. He was essentially neglected. And... Ultimately, we had to go into the federal judge and ask him to be moved out of Dixon because they'd let him get down to 76 pounds. He had septic bed sores, and he was really on the verge of death. They didn't give him a feeding tube because they said he refused a feeding tube, but he really wasn't in any condition to make that kind of decision for himself. And in fact, his mother had a power of attorney, a medical power of attorney, and she wanted him to have a feeding tube, and they wouldn't listen to her. They just said, well, Montel didn't want one. So he was on the verge of death. 
and that story for you was sort of your introduction to the state of care in, in Illinois prisons? It really was, because I was relatively new to this work at that point, and I just couldn't believe episode after episode that they would neglect somebody in such obvious need so terribly. Let's establish a couple of basics as we start this conversation. As we sit here today, about how many people are housed in Illinois prisons across the state? At the moment, it's about 40,000. So there are about 40,000 people who the state has taken custody of. And so from a constitutional perspective, the state is responsible for their care, including their medical care. That's right. And then let's talk a little bit about, I suppose, some measurables. How much does Illinois spend on health care for a prisoner? How is that health care delivered? And how does that compare to what happens in other states? Well, Illinois currently spends, and this number comes from the Pew Trust, about $3,600 a year per prisoner on health care. That includes everything. That includes mental health care as well as physical health care. And this population is needy in, in both respects. Again, according to Pew, the national median is about $5,700 per prisoner per year. So we're way below the national average. And this has been true for a while. As our prison population expanded, spending on health care just hasn't kept pace with it. So now we're far behind. The states that are at the top of the spectrum, California is at the top, now spends close to $20,000 per prisoner per year. So we are way behind. We need to catch up. And when we try to break down that spending, I wonder, how does Illinois compare to other states? I mean, since the amount is so low, do we end up as a result with just fewer people to care for folks? Is it about the facilities sort of? How does that play out in terms of contributing to the poor quality of care? Well, we're also at the bottom of the spectrum in terms of healthcare workers per prisoner. Again, according to Pew, we've got about 19 per 1,000 prisoner. The only state that's lower than us is Oklahoma, which has 18. Uh, the median is about 40. For quite some time now, over a decade, uh, most of the care has been provided by a private contractor called Wexford. And they provide about 70% of the healthcare staffing, including virtually all the doctors. So a lot of what's being spent is going into their pocket and a lot of the healthcare workers who are being provided or in some cases not being provided because they have a very high vacancy rate are attributable to Wexford. So even for the number of positions they have, they'll often have vacancies so that the number of doctors or certified or qualified doctors in a facility may be below what it should be, even at best. Yeah, they they have, especially when it comes to the doctors, a, a terrific vacancy rate. I mean, usually about 30% at least of the doctors are missing. And this is really, really a problem because every prison, and we've got you know 27 of them now, has to be its own healthcare hub. They have to have services there. They have to have a nursing staff. They have to have a physician. And if they don't have a physician, somebody who can write prescriptions and make diagnoses, then obviously you can't provide basic medical care. So with that as a background, and you've sort of foreshadowed some of this, as you've gone through this litigation, how would you assess the quality of care that someone gets in an Illinois prison? Well, it 
going to depend on <laughs> what's going on on any particular day and whether you get the right nurse or you get a doctor at all or whether there's simply somebody not on staff. You are likely to be at tremendous risk if you have a serious medical need because you may get somebody who is overworked and not paying attention. You may get a doctor who actually just doesn't know how to diagnose your conditions because in addition to the doctors not, you know, there not being enough doctors, the doctors often aren't qualified in primary care. So they just make fundamental mistakes that shouldn't be made in prison medicine. They'll see somebody who they should suspect has an HIV infection, as we saw in one case, and decide he has an obscure rheumatological condition instead and treat them for that. So you're likely to be in danger if you need health care in an Illinois prison. Has the system always been that bad? Is it always bad in prisons? Is there something unique that's happened in Illinois? I think in Illinois, it's just a long, long history of neglect and not wanting to pay attention to the problem. I mean, prisoners aren't everybody's favorite constituency. If you have other public needs, it's easy, I think, to think that those public needs should rank above the needs of prisoners. The problem is when we take people into custody, when we lock them up, we also take on the obligation to provide these services. So we just can't look the other way. I want to just pick up on that point for one moment, because I think you're right. There's no natural constituency for prisoners. We have this obligation. Is this a part of just a problem that we've become sort of callous to this in our society, that we just sort of lock people away and, and just think that we can ignore them? Is it is it part of the whole problem with the system in your mind? Well, it's certainly part of the problem we know we have in America, which is the problem of mass incarceration. Since 1980, the incarcerated population has grown fivefold. Illinois is no exception to that. So what would have been a reasonable amount of money a few decades ago to take care of your prison population isn't going to be a reasonable amount of money when you've expanded that prison population exponentially. What we really need to do in Illinois and elsewhere is lower that population. In this, in reaching the settlement in the Lippert case, one of the things that you went through and you did a couple of times was sending an expert out or a court-appointed expert out into facilities and sort of looking at some of the elements of the system and where it was breaking down. I wonder if you could sort of talk about those reports, those experiences, and and a little bit, I think, for people about sort of what was going wrong with this system and, and why you think it failed or became so dysfunctional in this way. Yes, yeah, so we did have two court-appointed experts, um, not just the party's experts, but experts appointed by the judge in Lippert over time, one who did a report in 2014 and one who did a report in 2018. And one of the things that's interesting about these experts is that in addition to being really nation, nation, nationally known healthcare correctional experts, they were both people who had, for periods of time in the past, run the Illinois um, prison health care system. So they knew it intimately. So the first one of these, in 2014, Dr. Shansky did a survey of eight of the most critical prisons. He and his team reviewed a lot of records and issued a 450-page report which said categorically, Illinois is not delivering a constitutional level of medical care to the prisoners in its custody. 
that there were problems in medical record keeping and the physician qualifications and staffing and vacancies in quality improvement programs, which may sound sort of nerdy, but those are the programs that you have to have so that a healthcare system can identify its problems and correct them. So essentially it can learn from its mistakes. They had no mechanism for doing that. They had a sort of paper process. It didn't actually really collect usable data or solve the problems. The dental program was a disaster, and there were hosts of errors in patient care that were leading to patient harm and death. Wow. So so even, I, I just want to pick up on that one point that you, I thought, aptly described as nerdy, but it is important. So there was really no process within the system to self-correct, to make improvements. Right. One of the things that you need to do is look at your deaths in particular to see when you have the, you know, the most critical, the most disastrous events, what went wrong, so that you can figure out how it won't happen again. And they had no process for mortality review at all. But in 2018, when the second expert, Dr. Puisis, came in, he found that, he and his team found that most of these problems were still there, even though they knew after the Shansky report in 2014 that they they not only knew what the problems were, but they had a roadmap for correcting them because there were recommendations. Most of these things still weren't fixed. So let's talk a little bit about the Puisis report from 2018, because one of the things that that report looked at in particular was the issue of preventable deaths. And I wonder if you could just share what that report found. They asked for two years of nonviolent deaths in the Department of Corrections. Um, so you know, anybody who really died of a healthcare-related issue. And there were about, I think, 180 to 200 of those. They reviewed in great detail 33 of those. And then they said, we've done enough because what we have found here of these deaths, 12 of them were preventable. Out of 33. Out of 33. Five of them, the records were so terrible We can't tell whether they were preventable or not. And seven of them were possibly preventable. And so they said, even in the whole sample of 200, that would be far more preventable mortalities than would be acceptable for a system. We don't need to look at any more. Wow. Beyond those numbers of of people who died, and you sort of alluded to this earlier, but there was a lot of reports about just mistakes, just errors in basic things that were causing people harm. And I wonder if there's one or two of those stories from the report that sort of jump out to you. Well, so there's the case that I mentioned before of the person who actually had an HIV infection and was diagnosed with lupus, you know, unusual rheumatological condition. That's just a basic error in medical decision-making. In many cases, it's a combination not just of mistakes, but of sort of refusal to look at what's in front of you. Um, There's the very sad case of um, a young man who entered the Department of Corrections with a pretty short sentence, actually. He was supposed to be out in a couple of years, who had a underlying from childhood heart condition. And while he was in the county jail before he got transferred into the state prison system, he was supposed to be undergoing a workup for a valve replacement. 
And the county jail actually managed to carry this process forward. But then he gets transferred to the Department of Corrections. And there's a letter in his file from his cardiologist saying exactly what he has, what he's scheduled for, what needs to happen. It's not clear whether nobody ever read it or they just ignored it. At some point, they did figure out that he had a heart condition. They identified the wrong valve and sent him for testing about that. Then the prison doctor prescribed a medication for him that was actually incredibly dangerous for somebody with the condition that he had. And six months later, he's dead. Mm. Wow. So we've spent some time here talking about this system and some of the harms you've seen, and I think these personal tragedies. You've reached an agreement to do a fix. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what is encompassed in that agreement. How does that work? What do you see going forward? So the agreement is is technically a consent decree. It's a. It's I a, try to use non legal <laughs> terms. Well, we we, you know, we think this is important because it's a it's a court order, um, and so it's not just a private agreement between the plaintiffs and the state. It's under the oversight of a judge, but embodied in that agreement, what's really important, you're right, is the substance of it. But there are a whole series of things that are supposed to happen fairly soon. One of them is that there is going to be a staffing analysis so they can figure out how many healthcare workers they actually need. We think they probably need more than 19 for 1,000, but nobody really knows because one of the things that the court experts found was that no one for decades had sort of done any real thinking or analysis about the number of healthcare staff who are needed. It requires particular credentials in primary care for the physicians, or if they don't have those credentials, there's a a review process. They can't work in the system, essentially, unless they're approved by the monitor, who is going to be correctional healthcare expert in his own right is an important part of this agreement, too, because he's going to look at the staffing plan, look at an implementation plan that is going to be put in place to make changes in all the areas that the court experts identified as problematic. And he's also going to then assess how the state is doing in complying with the agreement to try to keep them on track to make sure that these changes go through. There's supposed to be an electronic medical record, um, which may sound very, very basic, and the state's known that they've needed this for at least 10 years, but they just haven't managed to put it in place. Well, now they're obliged by the agreement to put it in place. So those are some of the really important core elements of the agreement. I want to go back to the monitor for just a second, because I think just, again, to kind of flesh this out, the monitor is appointed by the court to oversee this process, right? And do they have a special role and responsibility beyond whatever the state does to sort of oversee this process? Yeah, I mean, the monitor will report to the judge on a regular basis and not just criticize the department if they're not keeping on track, but also can make suggestions as to how they can get back on track. And is generally, he's supposed to be a positive part of the process, but an independent oversight for the system. Because someday, you know, there won't be court oversight anymore. They've got to run the program on their own. They've got to have functioning quality improvement processes that will identify the problems and make sure that they don't recur. They've got to be able to analyze their own staffing needs. They need to be able to do all of these things themselves. So this is a way to get them up and running. How long does this take? 
Do you have any estimate as to how long it takes to repair a system like this? Well, it could take decades. I mean, California is sort of the example everybody looks at and um, kind of trembles about because it's been close to 20 years that they've been trying to fix their medical care system. Our agreement actually has a time limit. It has 10 years. We said we think this is a reasonable amount of time. This gives a deadline. It gives some urgency. And, um, you know, it's got to be fixed in that time. And where is the agreement, just the process in the court? You know, as we talk here in early February, is it in place? When will it be in place? What does that process look like? Well, since this is a a class action, it's a, a case brought on behalf of a big group of people, and the court had certified it, had officially recognized it as a class. There are special rules about oversight of settlements. So we've gone in and gotten preliminary approval of the settlement from the judge. Ultimately, he has to make a determination that the settlement is fair, adequate, and reasonable to the class, and that hearing is set for May. But because the problems of Illinois were such longstanding, we actually agreed with the state that some things should start happening now, even after preliminary approval, because we hope that we'll get final approval and we want to get this process running. What does a good system then look like at the end of this? What do you hope for in terms of what would you like to see healthcare in prisons in Illinois look like at the end of that decade? Well, we just hope it's a reliable system that actually attends to serious medical and dental needs. We hope that people get dental cleanings on a regular basis every two years, the way they're supposed to under department rules, but some of the prisons don't even have a dental hygienist to clean people's teeth. We hope that when you put in a sick call request, because that's how, if you're a prisoner, you get medical attention— that that gets promptly reviewed and that you see somebody who actually is capable of identifying the problem you have and whether you need to be referred to a physician or whether, you know, it's something more minor that can be taken care of with a painkiller. We just want reliable processes in place. We want doctors who know when a patient is catastrophically losing weight that they probably should screen them for cancer. We want just a reliable healthcare system and one that can correct its mistakes. I think nobody expects any system to be perfect, and we all know that healthcare systems sometimes make mistakes, but they shouldn't make preventable mistakes, and they should learn from their mistakes. I wonder if you, having been part of this process now for a few years and seeing this through to this settlement, if you have any sort of personal reflections on this process and the importance of doing this, is there any lessons you draw from having been part of this case? Well, I think it's it's sad. Um, and as a, an Illinois taxpayer and citizen, I really feel as if, you know, we all have a responsibility. I think most people don't understand that this problem exists. But those of us who've been involved in it and see it you know, we shouldn't be essentially sponsoring a system that's harming people whom we've put into the custody of the state. And so it's really almost a moral obligation of Illinois citizens, I think, to try to see that this gets addressed and fixed. So, Camille, what can someone who's listening to this podcast and trying to figure out where they fit in this as an average taxpayer 
and want to be responsible, what are the things that they can do to help with this situation? Well, keeping track of the case um, will help us. There are going to be regular reports by the monitor to the court. That's a public docket. We expect that there'll be news coverage of that over time, keeping an eye on it and keeping track of it. And we'll report on it on our website, too. But more concretely, unless we do what we all hope happens, which is significantly reduce the prison population of Illinois, this is going to need more funding, and that funding will have to be passed by the legislature. And prisoners are not constituency with a lot of voice, so it would be really helpful for people to reach out to their legislatures and just say, support this We need to fix this. Please fund this. Camille, thank you so much for joining us today and for sharing this information and talking about this case. I'd like to thank you all for listening to Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. Again, I'd like to thank my colleague Camille Bennett, our senior staff counsel, for coming and talking about this work and the efforts of the ACLU in this area. If you want more information about the Lippert case, You can go to our website at acluofil.org. Talking Liberties is produced by Max Bever. Executive producer is Chris Olson. This episode was mixed by Matt Sorrow. Our executive director is Colleen Connell. You can subscribe to this podcast and rate us. And again, visit our website for more information about the organization and contact us directly at talkingliberties at aclu-il.org. Until next time, this is Talking Liberties with the ACLU of Illinois. See you soon.